Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off building the soundhealthportal.com, building it out, making it ever more amazing and loaded with information and possibilities. You can go to soundhealthportal.com, click on the services tab, and then click on the campaigns. And there will be some free vocal profiling that you can get done. You just sign up for a free account. They don't spam you. They don't chase you down. None of that. Just so they can send you the report afterwards. And then you do two 45-second recordings all on the platform. It'll walk you through that. And pick your campaign. Meaning, I think possibly there might be either biodiet or neuroplasticity possibly PTSD. I'm not sure the campaigns are always rotating. So you can take your vocal prints, just meaning two 45-second recordings, and then you will be able to choose the one of, the, one of those free campaigns, and it will allow you to choose. And once you do that, you'll get a report within a couple of hours to the longest I've ever waited is a day at the very most. And you'll get a great amount of information which you can sit down and have a cup of tea and review and or take to your healthcare provider and sit down and talk with them about just to see what is either too much or not enough or something's a little odd over here. It's, it's an amazing resource for information. So Sherry is off doing that. This is another show where I'm going to say this is information you're going to want to share with your friends and or listen to again. And you can do that by either going to soundhealthoptions.com Click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio and you'll see the replay link there about 15 to 20 minutes after we end the show and or a little longer, maybe a half hour sometimes with the podcast aggregator of your choice. And that means could be Dog Catcher, Pocket Casts is one of my favorites and or Google Podcasts or iTunes. You can go and search there for either Sherry Edwards and or talk to me guy, all one word, just like it sounds, you'll find almost 700 hours of shows, but this will be the show there. I like Pocket Casts or Google Podcasts because it's easy to listen to. It's cross-platform, works on all devices, and it's easy to share from. So that when you listen to this, somebody out there you know, perhaps even yourself, has some fear thing that's holding you back from being, dare I use the term, all that you can be. Didn't mean to, John. We'll talk about that afterwards. It's an amazing story. John is a great storyteller. One of my favorites, I would say. That's really true. When I say storyteller, I mean taking, co-authoring with people that have great information, and then he turns it into really an engaging story. Once we get going here in a moment, he too is like that. John David Mann is co-author of the best-selling classic, The Go-Giver, which has sold more than a half million copies in more than two dozen languages. The Go-Giver has been hailed as the most important parable about business and life of our time by best-selling author and Wharton professor Adam Grant. A good description of many of the most amazing people I've encountered by Arianna Huffington and a must-read by anyone who wants to change the world by talk show host Glenn Beck. 
Inc. magazine named it one of the 18 most motivational books of all time. John never planned to go into business. It just seemed to keep working out that way. He has founded one school, one food distribution business, one graphic design business, and two publishing companies. John's diverse career has made him a thought leader in several different industries. In 1986, he founded and wrote for Solstice, a journal on health, nutrition, and environmental issues. John joins us to discuss Mastering Fear, a Navy SEAL's Guide, a must-read manual for anyone looking for greater courage and mastery in their lives. Welcome, John. Hey there. Good to be here once again. <laughs> once again, we keep uh, meeting up like this. Um, yep, I have to start here. Fear has a real function in the body, the hormone cascade that occurs from a truly life-threatening event, such as the classic cyber-toothed tiger, cave person lifestyle. Is the fear that mastering fear speaks to different uh, there's this, there's this uh, popular trope that fears is an acronym that stands for false evidence appearing real. And these, these uh, acronyms drive me crazy because, I mean, they may be helpful mnemonic devices, but first of all, that's not what the word fear means. Um, and, you know, it, it's like so many sort of little pop culture mnemonics, it's easy to seize onto them, to glom onto them and, and, uh, and miss some of the critical subtleties of, of actual human existence. Um, you know, it's kind of like love is never having to say you're sorry. I don't know what brought that <laughs> oh, up. No, that, well, uh, no, no, no. It's no. not really necessarily <laughs> the truth, although it may have sold Eric Siegel a lot of books. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, no, fear, I mean, as you said, genuine fear. There's, I mean, the fear has all kinds of shades, but genuine fear is simply the, the you know, your human system, body, mind, soul, becoming aware of danger. Fear is an awareness of and response to danger. Uh, and, you know, it goes without saying that that's, it can be a healthy thing. <laughs> nice kitty, nice kitty. Here, let me put you up my head in your mouth. Um, <laughs> the, Saber-toothed tiger doesn't respond well to that. So, yeah, there's genuine fear. The, the overwhelming majority of, of fears that most of us ex experience in our modern life aren't that um, they, they aren't actually a response to a genuine clear and present danger i mean that that does occur sure um we live in a dangerous world always have always will but probably 99.9 percent .9 of what we experience as fear or its various shades anxiety nervousness trepidation dread blah 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 most of those are really us reliving the echoes of some past traumatic event or some past, uh, uh, you know, harmful injurious event, again, real or rural, I imagine, but something from the past, or they're us dreading some imagined future that may or may not happen and probably won't. Um, or, or they're like, you know, the classic fear is imagining the worst in a situation, which most times, 19 times out of 20, most times doesn't, doesn't happen in its worst way. Being afraid to ask the girl to dance in junior high or, you know, being afraid to ask for the raise. These are sort of uh, cliched examples, but there's, you know, we all have millions of them in our lives, things that we're afraid or anxious about, you know, where there's no basis in fact. Um, 
And, and you know, so there's, there's that whole range from genuine life-threatening all the way to trivial, but we experience it as real. Uh, fear is just you know, constantly plaguing our lives, many of us. Most of us have very active interior lives that we're often not even aware of. We're actively imagining uh, dangerous, harmful futures. We're actively ruminating and chewing the cut. You know, ruminating is such a great word, by the way. You know that ruminating comes from the word rumen, which is the cow's stomach. When you're ruminating, mm. literally, you're chewing the cud. It's like you're sitting there out in the field of life, chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing over what that person said to you last week. It's uh, ruminating. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so, th- there is, so is, there is that whole range. Most of us, as, as I say, I believe aren't even aware of the extent of it. So I think the first step is to just point a finger at it and say, okay, let's identify what we're feeling and what, you know, call it what it is. Well, and I think um, ruminating is also a favorite word of mine. I, I, I live in a part of Northern California. When I drive out to the coast, I see many cows performing amazing artwork on the hills. You know, just their formation, their <laughs> style. They're truly masters of art. It is. And they're, you know, they're either standing around or they're laying down. Occasionally they lay down as a group. And I think it's like, we're having a meeting? What are you doing? It's always so odd to see cows just like gathered laying down. But they're out there they ruminating. They don't mean they don't mean to change the climate. It's just what they do. Yes. It's right. what they do. They can't help it if they belch. It's actually belching, <laughs> not farting. Um, there you go. And what the, I think the difference between us and cows is cows aren't thinking, oh, you know, I should have gone up that hill and had that grass over there. Or was I mean mm. to that other cow this morning? Or is, is Bob mad at me? What's going on? You know, they're just... Mm. I think I suspect, I mean, I'm totally making this up, but I'm suspecting that cows stay pretty present. They're not ruminating. I'll talk about, you know, my personal issue. My mind is like a box of marbles. Yeah. And things just bump into each other. And sometimes they're great things. Most of the times they're pretty good things. I'm pretty happy with how my thinking is. But every once in a while, something bumps into something and I go, oh, yeah, I'm ruminating on it. Only in my case, mm-hmm. I think of it as not ruminating, but grinding on something. There's that thing yeah. where you get into your head, you bump into that one of those marbles sneaks in out of the corner that you kind of have that pile of marbles over there stuck away, kind of taped off like a hazard scene. And one of them escapes and you bump into it and it's a bad thought. You know, I, oh, I should have this or I'm not doing that or I didn't go to the gym this week or, you know, just all those things. And I don't think cows do that. I think cows are pretty much just really literally in the moment ruminating. <laughs> and I think it's an admirable quality. So I try and do that when I'm driving out to the coast to do work. And I see cows, I try and go into that like, I'm just here, look, it's lovely. Don't thinking about what I didn't do. I didn't get that edit finished. I'm not worried about this or that. And it's quite quiet. There's really that about, you know, this. this I, and that's part of what I like about this book is it's moving us out of, what I will call, a, a, yes, there is that survival threat, you know, when you hear a noise or you hear something or that can be threatening, but that marble that rolls out of the corner that starts you grinding on something is a waste of energy. And yeah. and I think that yeah. that's one of the things that I really like about the the this book, The Mastering Fear, <clears throat> is is having fear can be a lot of energy. 
that you could do, you know, you could redirect and you, that's what you guys really ultimately get us toward is redirecting that energy. Well, um, also it can, you know, it also can, can really truly hold you back from, and, and, you know, to use what you said, holding you back from being all you could be, it can actually cut you off of the path from, you know, from the truly great things in your life to, to, to taking the leaps that you need to take. I mean, I guess, you know, in this book, there are examples, there are stories about, real physical danger about, I mean, this is a Navy SEAL for God's sake. So there, there are stories about, about battle and there are stories about, uh, sur- you know, life or death survival in, in various contexts. Those are mostly, we're using those as examples. Those mostly aren't what readers are going to experience. I mean, mostly what we're going to experience, the things that we're really trying to get at with the book is the kinds of fears that hold you back from doing what would be great to do in your life, doing what you need to do, doing what you want to do, doing what would be fulfilling. So whether it's a career decision, a family decision, a life decision, um, you know, big or small, that's what we're particularly trying to get at. You know, where, where fear becomes a handicap, that's what we're trying to address. And, I'll give a great example. Great example, okay. if I can. The book yeah. starts out with this, and this is, this is the catalyst for the book. So uh, Brandon Webb, my Navy SEAL friend, um, who knows a thing or two about fear, and, and, and contrary to possibly popular belief, people like uh, you know, Army Rangers and, and uh, Green Berets and Navy SEALs, these guys are not without fear. They've just learned how to master their fear. And mastering their fear is not the same thing as denying it or squelching it or uh, you know, just ignoring it. So my friend Brandon has, has a friend named Kamal, who's this brilliant entrepreneur, who's very accomplished, best-selling author, super, super guy, has become a good friend of mine as well. And Brandon learned something about Kamal that blew his mind. Kamal couldn't swim. And here's a guy in his 40s, mm-hmm. or whatever his age is, he's ageless. And uh, he would go to parties with you know, wealthy friends in the Hamptons, and they'd all go hang out in the, po- in the pool. And he couldn't go. It was like, it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't hurting his career, but it was a serious bummer for him. It's like he couldn't swim. And uh, it was socially awkward, socially difficult. But more than that, what really got to Kamal was he didn't like this feeling that he couldn't do something because of some, some unnamed, unnameable fear. He didn't know why he couldn't, couldn't switch. He was terrified. And he'd been to lessons, he'd hired teachers, he'd hired private teachers, some of the best, and everybody had tried to teach him how to swim, and it had always dismally failed. So Brandon said, well, I'll teach you. He said, yeah. I said, Kamal later told me, he said, uh, I figured a Navy SEAL is not going to let me die. It's like he knows, at least he knows how to prevent that, so uh, I'll give it a try. So Brandon took him to a pool in New York City over the course of a couple days, and in the course of a few days, like three or four days, um, Kamal mastered swimming. And at the end of it, Kamal turned to Brandon and said, you need to write this in a book. And that's what this book is. It's the steps that he took Kamal through. Um, but it's a, I think it's a beautiful example of, of, of a fear mastering you rather than you mastering the fear. We're often mastered by our fears. We're, we're, we're uh, uh, you know, tied down, enslaved by different fears. And that's what we're trying to free people from. And I was going to ask this later, but this, I have to ask it now. When you were pretty young, you were a cellist. 
And when you performed early on in your career of playing the cello and performed in public, did you have fear? And how? To, and do you wish that, I, I mean, I imagine, I bet you wish you had this book then. However, how did you get past that? Or do you still, are you like Johnny Carson, you, you still throw up every time you perform? <laughs> no, not like Johnny Carson, uh, not like uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, who would do the same thing. Um, you know, I, I, I never had, that was not a fear I ever had to overcome. I, I never had a major fear in public performance, whether it was playing the cello or being a public speaker. Um, and there's a reason for that, which we can probably circle back to, because it has to do with one of these steps um, that I had done. Well, you know what? We'll circle back to it right now. Um, I, I assume we're going to go through these five steps in this call. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, but one of them, one of these steps is, is the step of rehearsal. And this is like the Navy SEAL's secret mm. more than any, any of the other steps, I think. Uh, and rehearsal is, we'll talk about it more, I'm sure, but rehearsal is basically going through the procedure, going through the process of this thing that you're afraid to do, going through it in a safe environment, going through it in a controlled situation, um, so the fear aspect is taken away and going through the steps carefully, sequentially, accurately in some diminished way that makes it easier, whether it's in the case of playing the cello, maybe it's paying a passage slower, note by note by note, or maybe it's, you know, doing it softer, or maybe it's doing it with nobody watching just by yourself, or maybe whatever the, whatever the, the circumstances are, you need to blunt to make it safe then you do it that way. And you do it over and over, ratcheting up the parameters bit by bit, always accurately, always taking care to do it the way you would want to do it, only slower or softer or solo or whatever. Um, and you do it over and over until it becomes muscle memory. That's just, it's the, such a simple thing, the secret of rehearsal. But that's, uh, uh, that's why I never got nervous in public speaking. The first time I had to give a lecture, a talk, it was, a, it was about uh, uh, cancer in the medical establishment. I was, I don't know, 20 or something. And uh, weeks beforehand, I sketched the whole thing out. I wrote it out. I mean, I, I wrote out not word for word the entire lecture because that would be, you know, stiff and cardboard and boring. But I wrote notes and notes and notes and I punchlines and thoughts and examples. I had the whole thing so totally crafted. Um, by the end of that year, when I had to give a talk, I would like jot down a couple lines in a, on a three by five card 15 minutes before the talk and just go out and wing it and be equally comfortable. But it was only because I'd spent the first few times going over it and over it and over it and over it and over it until I absolutely knew it by muscle memory. Um, and so, no, I, I, never, I never had to deal with, with fear in that way. I, I've dealt with, in, with fear, you know, in, in other areas of my life, but... And how you and you and Brandon have co-authored a number of books. How do you get into the headspace of a Navy SEAL, a, a trainer of snipers? Did he take you out on some halo jumps? I mean, how do you how do you get there? Yeah, uh, I never did. You know, he never. We always used to talk about it, but he never. So far, Brandon's never taken me flying never taken me shooting, never taken me stalking. You know, the, the, the key things that we've written about so many times, um, 
I've had to step into his experiences purely by talking with him and then using my imagination. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, any writer has to do that and any person has to do that in order to have empathy with another human being. None of us have done everything, but all of us have done something. And all of us have the same basic human story. Um, so, you know, the reason that you can relate to anybody anywhere in the world, if you just try, is that, you know, to, not to sound trite, we're all human beings. We've all experienced love, aspiration, disappointment, frustration, fear, you know, triumph, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, never done any of those things, but I've lived them uh, through Brandon vicariously and, and you know, through, through really studying them and, and actively imagining them at rehearsal. Just rehearse them in my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just because I, uh, the word, uh, <laughs> I don't want to leave that word just out there lurking because it sounds slightly spooky out of context. Talk just a little bit about the stalking part. Because that's like, really? Stalking? <laughs> sounds creepy. <laughs> so just talk about that for a moment <laughs> to explain okay, what that so is. Okay, so when there's someone that you really, really like, but you don't know, I'm not sure that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> stalking. So let me tell your, your listeners how to... No, so the, uh, you know, what you tend to associate with a sniper is shooting, right? A sniper shoots. That's what a sniper does. Uh, the reality is, is a sniper like Brandon or like his students, they may actually pull a trigger. I mean, out in the field, we're talking, not in training, but out in the field in, in, when they're active, on active duty, they may pull a trigger, you know, once in, in a year or, or once in a month. Or, you know, but it's rarely depending on, on what the tour of duty is. Very, very rarely. Mostly what they're doing is watching, observing. A sniper is first and foremost an intelligence asset, uh, uh, an asset of reconnaissance. Um, so stalking simply is just exactly what you know, a hunter does with a deer in the woods. A stalking is just following, observing, reconnaissance, not necessarily, and this is critical, with, with the goal to, you know, to kill the person, to shoot them. Um, more times than not, many more times, the goal is not to harm the person, shoot the person, kill the person, or necessarily even capture the person. It's gather information. So a sniper is first and foremost an, an observer of human nature. And because the sniper already... is so much fun. Yeah. I was, I'm sorry. That's what makes working with Brendan so much fun. You know, in, in the context of business writing and, and personal development and all these other non-military areas because everything that he's studied, it, it just applies so beautifully to the rest of life. Well, and there's that great, I don't remember what chapter it was, but there's that great story uh, early on, I think pre-Navy SEAL when he was a young man swimming and working on a boat where he had to go get the anchor and he talked about the yes. sharks in his head. Can yes. you tell us about that? Because that's such a great that's such a great example of, you know, making stuff up. Talk about the sharks in our head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, so he, here he is. He's, I, I've forgotten now. Was he 16, 13? <laughs> he was a, t- a teenager. And he was working on a dive boat off the, ca- off the coast of California. And the captain of the boat, this was a, a, basically a tourist boat. The, the business of the boat was they would take tourists out to dive and Hunt other hunt fish and snorkel and whatever. So uh, they would take tours out, and Brandon was a kid, basically a cabin boy. And um, 
was an excellent swimmer. So they've been talking a lot about sharks and shark hunting. And, and now looking back as an adult, he knows that it was all just blowing smoke. They weren't really going to go uh, some some great big white whale or white shark hunt. But that's they were talking that game. And and uh, Brandon had heard a lot about sharks, 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 and he had a he had a terror of sharks. And one night. The ship got stuck. The anchor got stuck. The ship wanted to take off, and it was a uh, storm was brewing, and they wanted to get out of that area. And the anchor was stuck. They couldn't pry it loose from the floor of the ocean there, and they someone had to go down manually unstick it. And that someone you know, was Brandon. They said, hey, get out of your bunk. He was fast asleep. He had to wake up, put on his gear, go down in the middle of the night, pitch black outside, go down underwater, and, and, you know, and pull out the anchor. Actually, not that difficult a task physically, but of course, it's the middle of the night. It's dark. He's diving, and what is he thinking? Sharks. <laughs> he's got <laughs> complete. His head is full of sharks, and um, you know, he said. I think it was the first time that he really faced personally the fear of death. He, he it, to him, it was imminent. To him, it was real, and he had to, you know, he had to get those sharks out of his head in order to stay down there and not panic. He could have panicked. He could have, in fact, he could have just said, you know, guys, I can't do it. I can't go down there. It's too dark. I'm too scared. But um, A, he would have lost his job. And B, it was just like Kamal in the pool. He didn't like the, he couldn't articulate this thought, but he didn't like the idea that this fear uh, was going to close off this path in his life, was going to shut it down. You know, it would have, it would have been one of those, you always wonder what if. Um, because he would have been off the boat and his career would have changed. He probably never would have become a Navy SEAL. And you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. There you go. So uh, <laughs> he had to get down there, down there in the dark, roamed around for the anchor, find it, work systematically to free it, all while he is completely sure that any moment some shark is going to swim up and rip his arm off, which, of course, it wasn't. And they wouldn't have sent him down there if it was, if it was a clear and present danger. Um, but he had to get past the irrationality of it and to the rationality of it, what he knew to be true. And so the sharks in our head, I, I had the aha because of back to the, uh, my box of marbles or boxes, yeah, marbles in my head that the sharks in our head seem to be waiting for, <laughs> I'll, I'll do this, uh, seem to be waiting for that mental chum which is the opportunity for that shark to come out of the corner and start grinding on you again. Uh, obviously <laughs> I have an issue and I'll be seeking therapy after the show, but it just seems <laughs> like um, that that is really kind of what that is. The sharks are in there lurking. And if you empower them, if you give them the power to go after that mental chum, once they get the chum in the water, which can be a bad thought or a wrong thought yeah. or an incorrect thing you're making up, and then it's off to the races. They're in there swimming right. around That's in your right. brain. Okay. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we, and we, I think you're right. We throw out that chum constantly. Uh, and, and it's, you know, back to Brandon's experience. When he uh, got back out of the field, he was in, in, uh, um, in Afghanistan, you know, shortly after, after 9-11 and did a couple of tours there. And then when he got back to the States, he was tapped to start training snipers. He ended up becoming the head of the, the sniper, the SEAL sniper training program. And he and a buddy were charged with completely rewriting the program, bringing it up to date to the 21st century. And so they made a lot of changes in the program. 
Um, we write extensively about this in the book, The Killing School, in the, in the, in the heart of that book. But the, the, the number one change he made, I mean, they, they updated it in terms of they brought new science to it and new technology to it and all kinds of, of advances in training skills. And, and, but the number one change they made was that Brandon instituted a course in mental management. And he still today considers it his signal contribution to, to the SEALs. And this mental management was basically self-talk. I mean, you know, right out of a personal development 1996 seminar, and these are, these are like life or death Navy SEAL issues that they're dealing with on the battlefield, self-talk. That was his number one deal. And he said, you know, he used the example of, uh, of a kid playing, playing t-ball and the coach yelling at him and saying, don't strike out, don't strike, not t-ball, baseball, don't strike out, don't strike out, which is the worst coaching you can give to a kid, right? Because if you say, don't blow it, don't blow it, what are they going to do? Um, it's, it's just like saying, ah, you know, you're swinging the golf club and saying to you, in yourself, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss. And that's what he said a lot of snipers were doing. They were, they were, uh, they'd learned, they'd been so uh, uh, programmed by these sort of Marine drill sergeant type instructors shouting at them, yelling at them, telling them not to screw up this way, not to screw up that way. But they were, they were basically talking themselves into missing the shot. They were talking themselves into bad aim. They were talking themselves into poor performance. And, um, you know, we, we do it all the time. There's, there's, two, there's three ways to tell a kid who's running around with scissors uh, to stop it. One is, you're going to put your eye out. The other is, um, you should stop running around because that could be dangerous. And the third is, here, let me have those scissors. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, first, the, first, the first two are, are, are predictions of the danger. And, and you really are training the kid how to hurt himself. And that's what, that's what that chum is. We're training ourselves how to be prey, training ourselves to be preyed upon. Brandon uh, talks about this, the shark experience uh, and brings it to the present. And as he walks through the subways of, of New York City, he said, you know, there are sharks in the subways. I see them. I see them sometimes. They're predatory creatures. They're there to either to rob or to harm or to maim or to, you know, whatever. They're, they're dangerous. And uh, he he, uh, he brings the same kind of coolness of rationality that he had, he had, to, he had to train himself in under, underneath the water there at midnight to the subways. It's like you don't make yourself prey. You don't make yourself the target of the anxieties. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot, of it, a lot of it is mental management. It's becoming aware of what you're telling yourself, aware of what you're training yourself. It's amazing how often we say, I'm no good at this. Oh, I'll never get that. Oh, I can't do this. And, you know, the first step in, in the mental management deal is, is catching that, is becoming aware of the negative self-talk we've got running. And then replacing it with positive talk. I've got this. I've got this. I, Richard, I've written 30 books. Some of them have been New York Times bestsellers. You know, I, I have all the evidence I could ever possibly need that I know how to do this. But I... Honestly, I'm not kidding when I say this every day when I sit down to write. There's a point, usually in the first half hour, where I go, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I do not. I don't know what to do here. And I, I still catch myself and say, you know what? 
this is challenging. This is juicy. This is going to be hot. I got this. All I need to do is find it. Um, and I have to take myself by the hand still every day, catch myself running myself down with my mouth or my mouth in my brain and, uh, and flipping that on its head, turning it around and, and, you know, getting my aim back. Well, one of the, the ahas for me was thinking about the, the fear thing, particularly with Brandon training the Navy SEALs, is in that instance, it really pointed out to me the, the importance of removing that fear, because in that case, you're talking about literally life and death situations, where if you're yes. temporarily distracted thinking, oh my God, I can't do that, and then somebody sneaks up on you because you're not paying attention or you miss the assignment of either taking someone out or observing somebody to report back. Cause there's always somebody in your ear monitoring you. I suspect talking to you going, go, you know, I, this is yeah. all cinematically. I'm speaking. I have no experience. Um, but just thinking that way that, you know, it, it's a distraction. And in that instance, you can't have that distraction. You have to be completely in the moment. It's like a race car driver. I've known yeah. some race car drivers, and they are there when they're yeah. driving at a 210 miles an hour. They're not thinking, oh, did I leave the stove on? <laughs> <They're>, no. <laughs> There's, yeah. If you're not there at that speed, I've gone around Laguna Seca with Bob Bondurant at the wheel. Yeah. And when he's yeah. taking you to the bottom of the hill at that corner that's a left-hand turn – He's not thinking about a fight he had with somebody earlier today. He's thinking about taking that car in corner at the fastest speed he can, and he's not kidding. Um, yeah. So it's very much fear can be a distraction. But in the same way, yeah. it led me to think about those are life and death situations, but those are also situations, as you, as you mentioned, talking about you know, either dating or performing or trying to date or whatever we want to call that yes. whole category. Of. Yes, 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 and I and, and I, I got to jump here in in here and Please. say, and here's the here's the key thing I want to really uh, it, 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 there's one thing that listeners take away from this conversation it 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 should be this and that is the goal is not to get rid of the fear the goal is not to push away push down or or try to eliminate the fear the goal is to embrace it and use it. Fears, if you try to push it away, it's a losing battle because it's, it's not going to. <laughs> it's hardwired. It's like, you know, it's like your bones and your blood cells. It's part of you. It's, it's a natural thing. The goal is not to try to get rid of it, which will only make everything worse, but to learn how to use it. In fact, to master it. And so the, the, the deal here is, is you don't see fear as an enemy you see it as a, an ally, like uh, the pole that a pole vaulter uses to go over the obstacle. Um, and that's, that's the training. That's the training is not how to you know, deny or push away, but how to use it. And uh, it starts with, I guess I can say, starts with this first step. And uh, the, we broke it down in the, in the book, Mastering Fear, into five steps that are kind of like a roadmap to mastering fear. And step one, we call decision. Step one is simply to make the decision. Um, there are, you know, I look back at the, the major decisions in my life, and there have been decisions that I have clearly made. 
there also have been decisions that were really, really important in my life, but they, I didn't really make them. I just kind of backed into them. Like, <laughs> and, and not to get snipey here, but I would say my first two marriages were decisions that it wasn't that I really decided to get married. It's more like the decision made me. Mm. And this happens, I think, a lot in, in our lives because we're you know, wrapped up in our circumstances with the people around us, people whose you know, opinions matter to us. And sometimes, you know, whether it's the career we get into, the job we take, the partner we are, are stay with or that we go with or that, in my case, we marry, um, or the course of action that we keep taking because it's what, what we've always taken, there are these decisions we make where really the decision makes us. And so the first step in mastering fear and mastering your life, really, is to practice making a decision, is to become the kind of person who makes decisions um, thoughtfully, consciously, with due consideration. And by the way, that doesn't mean blundering into decisions. It doesn't mean being headstrong. Um, if anything, it's the opposite, you know, uh, uh, Brandon talks about this in the context of business. He has a, a multi-million dollar business now. It's a media business in New York City. And there's a lot of sort of failure and success stories in business. But a highly successful business person uh, is, the cliche is, somebody who knows how to make a decision, you know, um, without hesitation, without looking back, without second guessing, make a decision. But more often, far more often, what the highly successful business person knows how to do is to wait <laughs> and, 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 and not make the decision yet. Um, sometimes no decision, no action waiting is far and away the better part of valor in, in this tricky business of, of navigating a life. So learning to make a decision is learning to seek the clarity, have the clarity, and then decide. I'm going to do this. And, and the, the, I suppose the, the key, the salient um, context for that is, I guess, is that you never know enough to make the decision. You never weigh it enough. You never have all the information. You never have all the factors assessed. You know, there always comes a point where you are, to some extent, going by your gut. You know, see to your pants. And you just decide. Um, because that's what a person of character does. You decide. And uh, then you look closely at the results, and if they're bad or if they're harmful, then you, know, you, then you learn, which is great. It's hard to learn from a situation when the decision makes you, or it's harder mm. to learn, I think. Um, I think that when you take the decisive role in taking in, in deciding what steps you're taking next. It, it's easier to learn because you're, you know, you're clear, you're in it. And I, I I'll jump in for a moment. I want to hear, I, I want to keep us, keep you going on the steps because I'm reflecting in real time about when I started cooking, it was, I didn't go to culinary school. That's a whole mm -hmm. different show. I didn't go to culinary school. I ended up training under a mean German guy who was really very yeah. skilled, gave me amazing skills. His personality skills, not so good. His skills as a culinary artist was amazing. 
And but it was not something I wasn't making a choice to do it. I was looking for a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I it worked out. I liked it. it. And then on the other hand, it wasn't something I did for 20 years straight. I kind of did it in four to five year increments because I'd get burned out. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go do something else that I really enjoy, you know, that I either pursuing my passion for environment or talking into a microphone or any number of things. And then I'd go back because I could always, my default was I could always go back to cooking to make mm-hmm. money, not great money, but mm-hmm. make, I could always, I could walk into most kitchens and cook so I could do yeah. that anywhere. But it was never a me thinking about it, considering pondering and then making the decision to do that. I was not fully engaged. I still yes. really like to cook. I love cooking. As we talked about backstage, if I won the lottery and didn't need the money, I would cook again because not you don't make nearly as much money as the food network would make you think you make. It's a <laughs> job and yeah. it's a hard job. Yeah. But it yeah, wasn't yeah. a it wasn't really my decision by direction. It was my decision by, oh, I'm here. I guess I'm doing this. I'm peeling this yes. hundred pound sack of potatoes with a knife because he told me to. All right, I'm here. And it was an interesting adventure. It was an interesting sort of surrender adventure that led to a kind of a lifestyle, but it wasn't me actually deciding. And now I see that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. The same thing happened for me with writing, honestly. You know, people say, how did you decide to become a writer? I didn't initially. It's something that I fell into, just like you're describing. Uh, I, you know, uh, at different organizations that I that I was part of, I was always the guy who ended up editing the journal or helping somebody else, you know, fix an article or whatever. And I just kind of fell into editing, and then I ended up being a full-time editor. And then I needed somebody needed help writing a book, and there wasn't that moment where I said, "I'm going to become a writer." I did make a decision to become a screenwriter. Now, there was a point where my the career I was involved with, my, my business, another business, the sales business, was crashing and burning, and uh, a huge income that I was making was rapidly disappearing, and I was looking at you know the circumstances of my life just all crashing like a, in a heap, and I started thinking, well, like, you know, what, what am I going to do? And so I decided to become a screenwriter, and it was great because it was a great decision. It, it, it did not work out at all. I, I made no money at it. I had no success. I never got a screenplay produced. Um, but it was it was the beginning of this career I have now. Um, I decided to become a screenwriter. Did it work? No, but that's okay because it led to the next thing that I decided to do. So yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes decisions make you and you sort of back into a situation, and and it can serve as a launching pad for you know for what comes next. So I don't mean to denigrate that circumstance, but I think there is a real difference between being in a situation and deciding to step into it. Yeah, yes. And I, I have to interject for just a moment when you were talking about when you still to this day, when you sit down at times and you think, what am I doing? I have no idea what's going on here. When I, yes. when I go to friends' houses, sometimes to cook, to have a meal, because I really like that occasion of having a meal and talking and cooking. And they'll pull out, it's like a surprise box. It's like the chef's box where they, you know, we have this on hand and people would be horrified if in that moment I, they didn't know that in my mind, I'm going, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. I got nothing. I, you know, and then it slowly comes together. I let the body memory come in. I mean, I have a always kind of a plan, but not really. I mean, there's no, yeah. you know, I'm just not walking around 
thinking about food all the time. I look at what's available, and eventually it comes together. But in the process of getting, you know, the mise en place and all that kind of, you know, fancy talk together, then the meal comes together, and I do end at a point where I have a goal of where I want it to be, and it ninety percent of the time gets there. But in that moment, I too have that, like, I don't know. <laughs> But it's the rehearsal, like you say, I think that's an important thing, is the rehearsal part. Part of it is, you know, it's when when you've held a knife in your hand for 20 years, either you get really good at it or your nickname is Stumpy. Um, and yeah, I choose right. to get really good at it. And it's a thing. And you and, and it's the same thing. It's body memory. So I think that, that step that you talk about of rehearsal is really important. To have that, you know, great of, painters are great yes. painters because they've done it a lot, not because they just yeah. came out of like, look, I can do this. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. and and it's it's no, it's okay. It's it's a perfect example of painting, and you know, public speaking is one of the is famously one of the most common fears, right? Public speaking. Same principle happens for public speaking, which is the way to over to well, the way the way I was going to say overcome your fear. So in my language, but that it's it's the wrong thought. The way to embrace the, that fear and let it propel you forward in terms of public speaking is, of course, as any speaking teacher will tell you, first of all, master your topic. You know, figure out what you're going to talk about, write it all out, practice it in front of the mirror, blah blah blah, etc. Yes, that's great. Same thing with painting. You practice, 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 but. There are a few principles here of note, and we, we, we kind of break it down and take it apart in the book. One of them is sloppy practice doesn't help. doesn't help you master anything. If you practice something sloppily, for example, I'll go to the cello. If I practice a scale and a few of the notes are out of tune, if I practice a, pa- a Beethoven passage and, and you know, some of the notes are, uh, are a little bit off, if you practice sloppily, all you're doing is training yourself to perform sloppily. Um, if you uh, if you practice your talk and you kind of mumble through this or mumble through that, all you're doing is training yourself how to get up on the stage and mumble. So part of the part of the the, the, the secret to effective practice is to practice rigorously. Yes, you take away the the challenge of it, the main challenge of it, by either in the case of a musical instrument, you slow it down. Or maybe in, in, in your voice, if it's the vocal thing, you take it in a lower register. Or if you're cooking, you know, you produce the meal for one, for a single serving, rather than for 50 or 100 or 500. Um, you, you, again, you reduce the, the factors of difficulty to a place where it's simpler. The, the principle here is you start out in your comfort zone. You know, one of the things people teach us, it's, this is kind of like uh, uh, love never means having to say you're sorry. People say the key to moving forward is to get out of your comfort zone. We say the opposite. We say that's BS. If you get out of your comfort zone, your body naturally reacts with panic. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, 98.6 is there for a reason because if you stray too far from that zone, you die. So there's a reason your comfort zone's there. So you start out in your comfort zone, which means instead of speaking to an audience of 500, you speak to one person that you know really well and feel comfortable with. Um, again, all you know, if you're going to parachute, if you're learning how to, to parajump, you start out jumping off a five-foot platform. So you're in your comfort zone. You know you're not going to you're not you're not going to die. You're not going to break your leg. You're only jumping three feet or five feet. And they'll actually do this, you know, in uh, in jumping school. 
So you start out by reducing the factors of danger. Stay in your comfort zone, but then within the comfort zone, practice rigorously. I've trained a lot of musicians, and it's, it's fascinating what people tend to do when you say, okay, take this slow, and take this slow and easy now. We're going to take it at you know, a quarter of the speed. Start to play and slow it down in their mind means take it easy, make it sloppy. <laughs> that doesn't work. When you slow it down, you play it just as exactly and accurately as a machine gun. And when you can learn how to do that at a slow tempo, then you can gradually increase the speed, you know, and suddenly you're, you know, you're Hillary Hunt or something. And so that, there's, there's a key to practicing. You have to practice well. And the biggest part of practicing is the practicing in your head because whatever it is you're going to physically do, you know, and, and by physically I include things like asking for a raise, asking for a date, the things that are interactional and human and, and, uh, and social, um, you're going to do them in your head multiple times, dozens of times, hundreds of times more than you're going to do them in actuality. So when you do them in your head, imagine it in your head with detailed accuracy. Um, that's, you know, that was always the key to my, my life as a cellist. I used to play pieces that were far too hard for me to play, but I would play them because I'd go, I would sit in my, in my bed at night and go over them in my head over and over every note perfectly accurate so that when I got to the, to the cello, my fingers already had you know, 80% of, of the battle behind them. So that's step two. Step one is decision. You make a decision to do it even though you don't know how you're going to do it. You don't know where you're going to find the resource to do it. You don't know where you're going to find the ability to do it. You don't even know if it's possible, but you decide anyway. You make the decision. And then number two is rehearsing, training the elements of, of, you know, of the task in your comfort zone, in a safe place, and gradually as you master that, ratcheting up the parameters, uh, which brings us to step three. And Please. step three, it, <laughs> step three is, um, it's funny, you'd think that you go from there, like in the case of uh, Kamal in the pool, step one was to make a decision. He and Brennan said, we're going to do this. It's not like sometime, maybe, maybe some week, or when you, don't, when you have free time, it's like Monday, be there, I'll train you to swim. And so he showed up Monday, the decision was made, and then they spent the first day rehearsing some of the, the uh, just dunking his head underwater and doing a few things in it right by the edge of the pool where he wasn't afraid. And every time he got afraid, he would grab onto the side of the pool and he'd be okay. That was his comfort zone. So instead of pulling him out in the middle of the pool and having him practice strokes, which would have been out of his comfort zone, Brandon kept him right by the poolside and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Then... Step three is letting go of the side of the pool. Uh, mm. stepping, step three is letting go of, sort of whatever safety net you're holding on to, whatever apron string you're holding on to, whatever uh, uh, you know, attachment you have that is, um, that's keeping you from stepping into the fullness of, of this activity that you've rehearsed. Um, I went through this experience once, in a weird way, I was, I think I had one book sold. No, I, this is before The Go-Giver sold. And so I was at the very beginning of my career as a writer. And I had a job as an editor for a magazine, which had a pretty modest salary, but it was 
barely enough for me to eke out a living. So I like I depended on this thing like a lifeline. And I was writing books. Uh, and we started working in the Go-Giver, but it hadn't gone anywhere yet. And I had a book deal, a ghostwriting a book for a guy. Um, and my agent and I went to New York with this, this author, and we went around to different publishers, and we had some great meetings at the end of the day. My agent said, I think we're going to go with this one. It's going to be Harper and it's going to be, and they're going to, you know, this is the offer they're talking about. We'll seal it tomorrow. And I was like, oh, God, this is great. We sold this book. I went back to my hotel room and I emailed my boss at the magazine and said, I, I have loved working here. I've done this for years, but I think I'm going to need to, um, I'm going to need to resign because I need full time to work on books. My book career is taking off. And uh, so I will, you know, I'll find you a replacement, but I'm just giving, here by giving you notice. Went to bed, woke up the next day. My agent called and said, oh, the deal fell through. Mm. <laughs> it turns out they, they, bat, they backed out. Um, so I, I had no book deal and I had no job. <laughs> it was great. That was the beginning of my writing career. Um, and so letting go. And, and uh, that's, that's letting go. Yikes. <laughs> and, but it but it pays Go off ahead. because it showed that you, you obviously moved to the a next step because you survived that once you got through the flop sweat terror. <laughs> yeah. You realized right. you weren't going to die. Uh you were gonna get That's another right. job. And so yeah. what do what do we? Where do we go from letting go of the side of the pool? I'm still sort of lingering in the letting go of the side of the pool. Okay, and then what? It's like free falling. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is free falling. And so you know, Brandon uses the example of jumping out of a plane because he had he had a terror of jumping out of planes, which was weird because he's always wanted to fly. He, he's always loved flying. But when he was in in early SEAL training, he had a close friend. Uh, we write about this in the book Among Heroes. He had a friend. Uh, who went on a, just a standard, not very dangerous uh, jump training. And uh, his, every trainer's worst nightmare happened. His chute didn't open and his back chute got tangled up, the backup yeah. chute. So he just free fell into the ground, died, boom. And, you know, from not from 20,000 feet, not from 5,000 feet, from like, I don't know, 1,000 feet or something. But it was, it was enough to kill him. And so Brandon had ever since had been – kind of a little bit queasy about jumping out of a plane. So he went through, again, this whole five-step process um, without at that point having articulated these five steps, but uh, of the, the, as you say, halo jumps. He, when he went, went through his first hey-ho jump, high altitude, high, high occupancy, what's the O stand for? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I don't remember. High altitude, high oxygen. I have to look it up. I forgot. There's oxygen anyway, involved. It, yeah. yeah. But not much. Yeah. So, yeah, b- before you could jump, you know, you have to, to let go of the straps that you're holding on to and step to the side of the plane, let go of the door. And then, you know, the next step is you jump um, and jumping off. Um, you know, in the case of Kamal, was pushing off the side of the pool and going out of the middle, middle of the pool and starting starting to, to, to float out there, not even swim. Jumping off is step four. And, you know, jumping off is kind of where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Jumping off is, is giving that first speech, playing that first recital, 
giving that first public talk, you know, walking across the dance floor and saying, may I have the pleasure of this next dance, uh, asking the girl out or the guy out on that first date. So that's what jumping off is. It's doing the thing. And um, the, you know, the, the, again, it's kind of like make a decision. Jumping off is very much like that in that you're never ready. This is where you count on rehearsal. This is where you count on training. When you let go of whatever you're holding on to for safety, the side of the pool, whatever it is, the, the reason that you can let go is that you've trained. The reason you can let go is that you've rehearsed. So at that point, you're letting go of the side of the pool, or you're letting go of the job, or you're letting go of the, you know, your room under your parents' roof, and you're letting go of whatever you've held on to for safety, what you're holding on to instead is the training you've done, the rehearsal you've done. Um, you know that you've done that. You know, you know who you are. You know what you've done. You trust, you have to, at that point, trust your training, which is why the accuracy of training is so important. And so you let go of the, of the safety net. You now have a new safety thing to hold on to, which is your training. And holding on to that, the knowledge of what you got under your belt, you jump. And the, the, the challenging thing is that there's no amount of training, there's no amount of rehearsal that can genuinely prepare you for that. You know, that's why there's this lovely saying in warfare that, you know, um, well, what is it Mike Tyson allegedly said? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, every battle, every battle plan goes to hell when the first shot is fired. Yeah. Uh, there's, Nothing can genuinely prepare you, or at least not fully prepare you, for the moment when you jump off. And that's just how life is. That is how life was when you came down the birth canal. Um, it was a freaky thing. So, you know, no, no amount of uh, uh, gestation really could get you ready for that. So mm-hmm. you have to just know that. That's okay. But you're not ready, but you're trained. You're rehearsed. So you jump. Um, and then I feel obliged to jump on to step five. And step five is, is, a, is funny because in a way it comes before everything else. Um, we call it knowing what matters. And step five is having clarity about why you're doing this, whatever it is you're doing. Having clarity about what, what matters to you, what, what's important to you. Um, you know, we use a few examples in the book of guys. I forget if we got all these examples in or just one, because I had too much to fit in the book. But there are a number of examples that we had, and at least one of them is in the book of friends of Brandon who got in really, really bad survival places in uh, in SEAL training where they were, you know, quite literally on death's door. You know, about to freeze to death and and and, and you know, having an infection, raging infection, and no energy left and no strength. And that in those in those moments of extreme, uh, you know, they would get a picture in their minds vivid of their kids. I mean, actually, they hallucin- this guy hallucinated. His kid was standing in front of him. And um, we tell another story about someone surviving uh, in a in an undertow out in the ocean off the coast of Maryland where there's nobody there but himself. And he was also drowning to death and had no hope of surviving. And what gave him the superhuman strength to get out of that situation, again, was the thought of his kid. His kid's birthday was happening in a month, and he had to be there. His first birthday. He said, I had to be there for my kid's first birthday. I just had to. There was no no choice, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I had to be there. Um, 
it's having people often in moments of life and death talk about having a sudden uh, a burst of an image of that what's most important to them. You know the movie um, about the guy who got caught in the canyon out west? Uh, mm-hmm. 27, 27 hours, I think it was called, or 47 hours, 57 hours, whatever it was. Uh, magnificent movie. Same deal. And the guy is down there in, in the, the gully. His knee is trapped. Water's flooding the place. He's been there for days. No one knows he's there. There's no, no way to get help. And he's finally pushed to the point of having to cut off his own leg um, to, to get out of there. And true story. And what it was that propelled him out of there was uh, hallucinating this image, this dream of his son who hadn't been born yet. He didn't even have a, a wife or a girlfriend. So it, but, it was, but he knew that was what he was living for. For us, step five is going through that process before you're stuck drowning in the gully. <laughs> Don't wait until you're off the coast of Maryland and nobody can save you. Um, but actually just in the, in, the, in the comfort of your home, sitting down and getting really clear on what are those things that matter to you most. Because knowing that, knowing what's, what's genuinely important and all the rest is dross, that's what allows you to make a decision to propel you into the rehearsal, the letting go and the jumping off. Um, it's ultimately, that's what creates a life of, um, you know, of, of adventure, you could say, uh, of accomplishment, of achievement, of fulfillment, of distinction, of character, is, you know, starting out from the place of identifying what matters to you uh, that, that makes all the rest of it worthwhile. That's really good. I, I really, I'm a uh, shocked to find we're at that point where I have to ask you about where would you like people to find out more information about the book and, or where can people find out more information about you? And do you have a newsletter? <laughs> I've never asked you that before. Man, yeah. Funny. You should ask. It, it, I, um, I don't. And I, I, there was a time a couple of years ago, I only stopped about two years ago where I was blogging actively and I had, a, a you know, I poured my heart into those blog posts and it was, uh, you know, an, an important part of my life. I stopped when I did that book, the recipe, because I had pouring all my energy into that. I haven't resumed the blog post yet. That was the closest thing I had. I don't have a newsletter, but I've been talking to myself about how I need to do that. I need to make the time for that. Um, to answer your question, the book is called mastering fear. A Navy SEALs Guide. Uh, it's a sh- fairly short book, not a difficult read at all. Um, it, it is full of little summaries and uh, bullet point, do this, 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 this step. So it's really designed to be literally a handbook that you have in, that you have in your hand for, for moving forward in your life. Mastering fear, for sale everywhere, as they say. You can learn more about it, about me, about all my books, about everything I do at my website, which is simply my name. John David Mann, M-A-N-N dot com. Great. Thank you so much. And I will reiterate that, that it really is great at the end of each chapter, there is a a workbook part part saying, you know, here are the things to follow up on this. It really, it's really, it is a short read. I mean, it's not a long, this is not a tome of how to, you don't have to, you know, I mean, it's very methodical in a very good way it's a great great piece of information you know really life-changing material in a simple form and lots of stories 
lots of fun lots stories of about Brandon and others he has known, some, mostly from his life, so much snuck in from my life, but there are lots of stories about mastering fear in different situations and circumstances. It's a great guide. It's a really, it's a, it's a fun read and um, really good material. Thank you so much. As always, time goes fast when we talk. Uh, everybody, I, have, <laughs> I know, I know. We're here already. Um, all right, everybody. Have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.